Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. It's hard to overstate the magnitude of the opioid epidemic. From prescription painkillers to heroin, opioids have killed more than 350,000 people since 1999 and destroyed countless families and communities in the process. And the crisis only seems to be getting worse with each passing year. But what's largely missing from the headlines is the fact that we already have effective medications to treat opioid addiction. A growing body of research suggests that drugs such as methadone and buprenorphine are the key to getting people in recovery and ending this crisis. But many barriers prevent patients from getting the treatment and support they need. Health policy expert Lisa Clemens-Cope tells us more. I want to start at a really high level and talk about the scope of the opioid epidemic nationwide. Can you give us a sense of what it looks like now? The opioid epidemic is a growing problem, and it has been for a long time. Drug overdose deaths in the U.S. have more than tripled between 1999 and 2015. Preliminary data show that 64,000 people died from a drug overdose in 2016, and prescription or illicit opioids were involved in about two-thirds of those deaths. Opioid deaths are contributing to decreases in life expectancy in the United States, along with a lot of other problems with the U.S. healthcare system. But overdose deaths are now the leading cause of injury in the United States. Leading cause of death or injury in the U.S., so more than car accidents. More than car accidents and more than HIV at the height of the epidemic in the mid-1990s. It's a lot. So this is a dramatic epidemic, and it really it, it is affecting so many different areas of American life right now. How did we end up here? The current epidemic of drug overdoses actually began in the 1990s. It was driven by overprescribing of opioid pain relievers. These pain relievers were aggressively marketed by drug companies and distributed by physicians. What happened is drug makers were exaggerating the safety and effectiveness of new opioids like OxyContin. There was actually a one-paragraph letter in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1990 that was taken out of context and used to downplay the addiction potential of these new opioid prescriptions. But because of this, many individuals who misuse opioids now began with legitimately prescribed pain relievers, and then they became addicted after long-term use. When we talk about opioid addiction, we're talking about both prescription drugs, and we might be talking about illicit drugs. That's right. Actually, the misuse of prescription opioids created the surge in the illicit trade of prescription drugs, but also of heroin. And in many parts of the country, heroin rapidly became cheaper and easier to get than prescription opioids. You said the availability of drugs really started to increase in the 1990s, When did this epidemic or when did some of these issues really start to take off? Really in the mid-2000s, but the crisis has evolved since then. And in the past few years, drug traffickers have flooded some regions of the country with fentanyl, which is a very potent and extremely dangerous drug that's now mixed into the illicit opioid supply. And that has driven this new burst in overdose-related deaths. You could overdose with a very, very tiny quantity of fentanyl. While prescription 
opioid pain relievers first did start the crisis. More recently, prescription opioids are roughly equal to heroin and the synthetic opioids like illicit fentanyl in sustaining the problem. And now there's increased use of cocaine and methamphetamine. So polydrug use is becoming much more common among people who have opioid use disorder. And as the crisis develops, are we seeing impacts now vary between certain groups more than others or or new groups being impacted by the opioid epidemic? So most opioid-related overdose deaths are among people between the ages of 25 and 55. But there are some features of the opioid epidemic, which were really promoted by uh, research and the media that are actually no longer true. For example, the epidemic of drug overdoses was was largely perceived as a white rural problem, and it's really expanded rapidly among Black Americans recently, particularly in the urban areas where fentanyl has become prevalent. And also the rate of overdose deaths, which used to be much higher in rural areas compared to urban areas since about 2006 have been converging to about the same rate these days. So there's really a lot of different groups that have been impacted by the crisis recently. And so is there a government agency that's responsible for overseeing opioid misuse overall? Well, there are many different agencies at the federal, state, and local levels And there is a disconnect between them, and there was not a very coordinated response. But this was driven really by the perception that there were specific regions of the country that were the only ones that were being affected by the epidemic. For example, people thought in New Hampshire is being really hard hit. That's where the opioid epidemic is happening, or it's really happening in West Virginia and Ohio. But really what has happened is because in part, of our lack of coordinated response between the federal, state, and local level, overdose deaths are increasing in many more states. So we're seeing places outside of the Northeast and Appalachia, where the, which were the places that were first hard hit, to more states like Florida, Louisiana, Nevada, Utah, New Mexico, lots of places that are outside those first regions. And so there is really a need for coordination at all levels, and also between silos. So you have law enforcement and you have the medical system, and there's really a need for the health system to be crossing over and for people to be working across silos. So the U.S. is dealing with this significant challenge of opioid misuse. Overdose rates are dramatically high still. Are there places, though, that we've started to make progress? A lot of attention has been focused on reducing prescribing of opioids and in limiting opioid supply. And research has been showing that healthcare providers have become a little bit more cautious in their opioid prescribing practices. So many measures like opioid prescribing rates have leveled off and declined since about 2012 in most places, and high-dose prescribing rates have also declined. So what are we missing in our response to the epidemic? There's a debate going on between people who are promoting supply-side interventions and demand-side interventions. So demand-side interventions would be like treatment, and supply-side interventions would be like law enforcement. And so I think one thing that is missing from the common discussion is that the supply-side interventions can have unintended consequences. And some researchers have pointed to what they call the iron law of prohibition, which is 
observed when there's an effort to stop the supply of an illegal drug, it creates market pressure towards a very compact and highly potent substitute. So you can see during alcohol prohibition, it turned beer into bourbon. And in this case, with the opioid crisis, we went from prescription pain pills to heroin to fentanyl. So you went from a pain pill to a little grain of fentanyl. Given that, where do you think we need to better focus our attention? There's a really critical need to focus attention on the treatment side. And if we're talking about treatment, what exactly do we mean? Is that medical treatment? Is that therapy? Is that group therapy? So medication treatments like methadone and buprenorphine are the most effective treatments for opioid use disorder. They work by activating the same receptors as other opioids, but these therapies are absorbed into the blood over a very long period of time. So they don't have a rapid onset. There's no rush of euphoria. And so it just gives the person a stable level of the drug in their brain, and it allows them to have a full life and a stable life. So these are medical treatments that patients can take that can help support regulating their interest and appetite for opioid misuse? Right. It substantially reduces their cravings and it really gives them an even much better chance at success. You mentioned the term opioid use disorder. Why are you using that term? The term opioid use disorder was came about in 2013, and it was created by experts, clinicians who wanted to describe this mental disorder diagnosis where a person has a pattern of opioid use that involves impairment and distress. Changing our language can make individuals recognize that they have a need for care and that they can avoid thinking of their disorder as a moral failing. So instead of words like abuse and dirty and clean, we can use value neutral language like disorder and in recovery, and it helps people recognize their need for care. And research has also shown that when providers, when medical providers use this more respectful language, they actually offer higher quality care. And are these medications just a replacement for opioids? Is this substituting one drug for another? That's not correct because, for one, dependence is not the same thing as addiction. For example, people with cocaine use disorder, addiction doesn't involve much physical dependency, but it can involve compulsive use. So there is a harm despite there not being a physical dependency. And people with diabetes can be dependent on insulin, but they're not addicted. So addiction is not dependence on a medication And the second thing is that methadone and buprenorphine maintenance therapy don't cause a rush of euphoria. They have such a gradual onset that people being treated with these medications are stabilized and they let the person get treatment for their substance use conditions and mental health and other medical conditions. And the proof is that people on these treatments have much better outcomes than the people who are not offered these treatments. How effective are these treatments in keeping people from relapsing into opioid use? When they do receive methadone or buprenorphine treatment, their success rates are 60 to 90 percent. So somewhere between six and nine patients for every 10 will be successful in not relapsing to illicit opioid use. And these outcomes are actually sustained in the long term. There has been recently a study that looked at patients who were on buprenorphine and 80% of patients were still not using illicit opioids after three and a half years. Detox and a residential treatment program that doesn't involve the use of 
medications like methadone and buprenorphine has a really low chance of success. Around 1 in 10 or 1 in 20 are successful. You are saying one set of treatments is effective at the 5 to 10% rate. Another set of treatments is effective at the 60 to 90% rate. Why, why don't we have these medications in the hands of everybody who could benefit from them? Well, a lot of people don't realize that they need treatment. There's a lot of stigma going on there, which is why it's really important for us to change our language and be less judgmental when we're talking about people who are in need of treatment. And the second thing is there's not a lot of access to these treatments. What would you say are some of the top barriers to getting these drugs, which seem to be so effective, into the hands of of people who could benefit from them? Well, buprenorphine is a drug where the physician or the prescriber needs to go through a waiver process in order to prescribe. And that is onerous for prescribers. And so only about two and a half percent of prescribers have gotten a waiver to prescribe buprenorphine. These are people who can prescribe basically any opioid that they want. They're just really restricted in their ability to prescribe this treatment. And what's the rationale behind that? There is a worry that there will be diverted buprenorphine for illicit uses. Of course, buprenorphine can be written for pain by the same prescriber. It just can't be written without a waiver by that prescriber for opioid use disorder. That's mind-boggling. So you're, you're saying the same drug. So it would depend on use. Do they have to report what the prescription is for? That's right. And it's even a little bit more crazy than that because When you go through the waiver process, you're a waiver to prescribe to 50 patients only. So you can only prescribe buprenorphine for opioid use disorder to 50 patients. Then you can have your waiver limit increased to 100 the next year. And you can apply for your waiver limit to be increased to 275 patients the next year. So it's a really a lot of red tape in being able to treat people with opioid use disorder. And actually, on the other side, methadone is even more highly regulated. Some people say that methadone treatment for opioid use disorder in the United States is the most highly regulated medical service in the world, and the clinic itself is highly regulated. Are those limitations mainly set at the state level, or are those federal regulations then interpreted at the state level? Those are mostly federal regulations, but there are also a lot of state regulations that come into play. So what else would you recommend that could be done at the federal level, at the state level to help to close this treatment gap? A big game changer would be to expand Medicaid in the 18 states that still severely restrict Medicaid enrollment for adults. Many of these states are places that the opioid crisis is having a devastating effect on families and communities. That includes Virginia, Florida, and Texas, and people can't get affordable access to effective treatment and recovery supports that they need to be successful. Those would be covered under Medicaid and with the government paying the lion's share of the cost, not the state. Even in states that have expanded Medicaid, they need to examine the benefits to make sure that Medicaid doesn't restrict benefits in a way that interferes with recovery. There's been a lot of talk about expanding the providers who are wavered. Obviously, the discussion should also include eliminating the regulations in the first place, examining where we can safely get rid of some of the red tape. And that would substantially expand treatment. If you make it easier for providers to offer the treatment, they would be probably more likely to offer it. 
And you've done work recently looking closely at California and how they've handled the opioid epidemic. What does California tell us about the national opioid epidemic? So in California, like in a lot of states, there was broad agreement across many stakeholders that there just wasn't enough evidence-based treatment out there, in particular, this opioid agonist medication therapy like buprenorphine. And so there was also an information vacuum about how many people needed treatment and how many treatment slots were available. Really was difficult to organize a policy response when we didn't really know the extent of the problem. The project looked at what exactly should be done, and we needed to produce county-level estimates of the number of people with opioid use disorder who lacked access to opioid agonist medication in their county, and how many new prescribers would be needed to fill the treatment gap. So you were trying to basically map the landscape of opioid users and tie that to how available some of the medical therapies were in order for them to be able to access. Right. And California is a lot like the United States, where in California, only 2.4% of prescribers in California have a buprenorphine waiver. And so our estimates recommend that almost all the counties need to double their number of waivered prescribers for buprenorphine, but the state would need to have somewhere between 8 and 16% of their prescribers waivered for buprenorphine in order to really fill the treatment gap. So that's four to eight times as many as they have now. And what do you think these findings mean for the rest of the country? What would be some of the short-term changes that you would implement if you were suddenly the opioid misuse czar in the U.S.? Well, we need to have a robust outreach program to high-risk individuals. We have to offer them access to screening and, if appropriate, give them access to evidence-based treatment. But that means that we basically need to take a no-wrong-door policy. So if an individual interacts with the health system at any point, that means mental health care needs to be attuned to the needs of people with substance use disorder. And also the criminal justice system needs to be another opportunity to access treatment that's affordable, probably free treatment. And that also needs a massive education campaign to educate people about the effectiveness of treatment. And are there longer term recommendations that you would add to that list? We obviously need to increase the number of doctors that step up and get trained so that they can treat prescribe treatment in an office-based setting. And we also need to decrease the use of ineffective treatments. The other issue is the affordability of treatment. Many states did not implement the Medicaid expansion. In the states that did have the Medicaid expansion, there's a really big increase in evidence-based treatment in those states. And the states that didn't take the Medicaid expansion, unfortunately, there really are lots of people that are priced out of treatment. You've used this term evidence-based care a couple of times. What do you mean by that? In this context, evidence-based care means that instead of having medical providers draw on their own clinical experience only and their own trial and error, we're really, they get to put their own experience together with evidence that's developed in a systematic way through systematic research. So in the case of medication treatment for opioid use disorder, there's an overwhelming body of systematic research demonstrating that buprenorphine and methadone are safe and effective treatments. And the research evidence can really help people who are diagnosed with opioid use disorder make better choices about the treatment options. 
So one of the big challenges for our country dealing with this issue is to move more towards using that evidence in an actionable way. Right. We have the evidence. Now we just need to use it. As always, let's close with some key takeaways. One, the opioid epidemic is the worst drug crisis in American history. In 2016, roughly 64,000 people died of drug overdose, and two-thirds of those deaths were caused by opioids. Two, medications such as buprenorphine and methadone are proven to work against opioid use disorder. 60 to 90% of people who get these treatments don't relapse, compared with only 5 to 10% of people who undergo counseling or other forms of treatment without medication. And three, we need to get more people into evidence-based treatment. That means getting the word out, doing more screening, and fighting the shame and stigma around opioid use disorder. It means changing policies so that more doctors can prescribe medications to treat it, And it means making sure that people have health insurance with comprehensive benefits so they can afford the treatment they need. So that's our show. Thanks to Lisa Clemens-Cope for shedding some much-needed light on this topic. You can find more of her work on the opioid crisis at www.urban.org. If you like this show, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, throw down a rating and type up a review. We truly appreciate the support. Thanks to Vicki Gann, who produced, and Riley Byrne, who edited this episode, and to Yvonne Powers for all her help. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner, signing off. <laughs>